This episode of Deep in the Weeds is proudly supported by Olsen Salt, Australia's oldest family-owned salt company. It didn't take months to, you know, really get settled. It happened pretty, you know, pretty much straight away. And it's just such a great community down here. Everyone is so supportive. Everyone wants, everyone that's here is here for the same reasons. You're here for the food, here for the atmosphere, the hikes, the wilderness, the beach, all of that. And if you're not into it, you've already gone back to the mainland. So it's, it's really easy to, you know, just jump straight into the community down here. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Over the last 18 months, the arts and hospitality sectors were the worst hit in Australia. Most venues associated with the arts cross over as places to socialise, drink, eat and share and discuss experiences. What impact has this had on those that ply their hospitality trade in the events and arts realm? Pip Anderson is the Hospitality Operations Manager and Wine Director for Mona in Hobart, Tasmania. Pip, how are you going? Good, Huck. How are you? I'm good. It's great to have you on the show. You've had such a fascinating career. Wine is your world at the moment, but you actually started as a chef. Yeah, I sure did. Um, yeah, no, I loved it. I was a chef for 10 years, um, but I definitely caught the wine bug. And fell down that rabbit hole very quickly and was fortunate enough to work for some incredible people that just kept leading me down that rabbit hole. And it just never ends. <laughs> That's what I like about it. <laughs> well, your career in wine has been incredible and you've influenced so many, but I'd love to just go back for to when you were young and when you first got interested in food and why chefing became your choice. Um, it was actually quite funny. I was supposed to go to Bond University in Queensland. I got accepted in year 11 and I was supposed to do a double degree in psychology and criminology. Wow. And then, yeah, got to year 12, tanked my HSC because I'd, I'd already got accepted. So I just kind of went and partied like a gremlin <laughs> and then finished that and looked at my parents and said, I don't want to do this. And they were like, you've got to be kidding. <laughs> Yes, yeah, so I told my parents, um, they fell off their chairs and off I toddled off for a chef's apprenticeship and I started with the Intercontinental Hotel and I just fell in love with it. It was great. Take us back to that time. What was it like um, starting in a commercial kitchen like that? Oh, it was it was full, pretty intense. Um, I was actually joking with my head chef here, Vinny, um, and we were having a giggle about how first year apprentice and I remember earning $175 a week and now I thought that was amazing. <laughs> Um, but yeah, no, it was great. You know, it was double, you know, you do five doubles a week back then. Um, uh, but it was a lot of high energy, high impact. Um, just you, you, if you caught the bug, you really caught it. Um, and you could see that. And I loved working with the five-star hotel because I meant I got to do quite a lot of traveling, uh, with that, which was, it really set me up for my career. Well, whereabouts did you travel to as a, as a chef? Uh, ended up going to Cayman Islands uh, for the Ritz-Carlton for their second opening. As their first opening weekend, they got demolished by the hurricane that came through in 2005. So this was their second opening. Uh, worked with Eric Repair uh, in the Blue and, yeah, and Periwinkle restaurants. What an incredible guy. Just absolutely amazing. And was there for just under a year. Um, you do get island fever. It happens very quickly. <laughs> you just have to get off the island. Um, so 
figured where, where do I want to go? And I thought going home, said no. Um, so we jumped on a plane and went straight to Sweden because my sister lives there. So got off the plane in Sweden, was in board shorts and thongs and I was in, you know, a skirt and it was snowing outside and customs looked at us like, are you in the right place? <laughs> we were also, I was also on one of those first working holiday visas and we were one of the first that was actually processed coming to Sweden. They looked at us going, why, why would you come to us? We go to Australia. You, no one would come to us. And I'm like, of course we'll come to you. Um, but, yeah, ended up working with the Grand Hotel uh, in Stockholm as well, which was just an incredible establishment and so much history there. Well, Eric Repair is one of the world's greatest chefs. Do you have any stories from that year that you spent under, under him? Um, I think probably the most of it was um, in the restaurant. There was a um, my partner at the time. He was the fish uh, monger. And all the fish was coming in live from local, the local farmers and the local uh, fishermen. And service would start at six, but his fish wouldn't arrive till five o'clock. Uh, so everyone, everyone have to run and do the prep and then everyone would have to jump in and just help them just rip apart all these fish and get filleted so we could just start service. So, yeah, it was quite a lot of fun. So there was stuff like that and um, a lot of high energy. Eric brought most of his senior team down. So it was really great to work with all of his sous chefs as well during that time. Uh, but yeah, his vision was just incredible for that restaurant. You mentioned a bit earlier that you started as a chef, but you caught the the wine bug. Take us to that moment. When did you start to realize? When did it click that you that you saw wine in your future? Um, I was working at Jonah's as the head pastry chef, and it was great for you know summer season was great. You'd work hard, work six days, and then winter you'd do four days a week, and that was the balance. But it was my second winter and I was a bit like, oh, what am I going to do? And one of my bar managers there said he just signed up for this new sommelier course at Ride TAFE, which turned out to be the first one that Clive Hartley put on. And I was like, oh, that sounds interesting. I go to fancy restaurants. I do the degustation. I order wine and I don't know what I'm doing. I'll, I'll do that. And I did that course for a year. And then WSCT came out, Wine and Spirits Education Trust came to Australia. So I did level three and then I did the diploma and I just kept doing more and more and just thought maybe I could do this. So yeah, took a job in, um, in uh, Bambini in the CBD of Sydney. Um, I was offered, I was offered a, a role as a commie sommelier with John Clancy and Benelong back at the days of Guillaume Brahimi, but I was too terrified. And I was like, I can't carry a plate. I can't start here. <laughs> like this is, this is not how this works. Um, so I started at a wine bar, um, which actually had the forte um, from the Swillhouse group. Those brothers were working there before they started their group. So it was just so much history. Uh, but that first week, I cried every day. Um, I came home. I was like, I can't carry. I can't carry a coffee. <laughs> I can't carry a tray. <laughs> what have I done? I've gone from a head pastry chef to someone who can't carry a tray of drinks. <laughs> but um, got through that week, and uh, yeah, just kept going from there. How, how different was it being, you know, behind closed doors in the kitchen to having to deal with customers as well? It was it was quite a challenge. Um, thankfully, Bambini Trust, it's uh, the building that it's in has got quite a lot of law firms. So the regulars are they're real regulars. They're in for you know their morning coffee, down for lunch, and then five o'clock knockoff drinks as well. So you see them three times a day, and I think that really helped my success. They helped with my confidence, uh, building those relationships, seeing how you can build relationships with customers. Um, yeah, it, it taught me a lot. You ended up uh, managing five wine bars. 
Do you have any crazy stories from trying to operate those at the same time? Uh, absolutely. Uh, so the first one was in Neutral Bay and then we had uh, one over in Lane Cove um, then ended up being one, it was one in Walsh Bay as well and then one over in Willoughby. And the days of just driving between the venues and I'd just be driving across the Harbour Bridge and realise I'm going, I'm heading to the wrong one. And you're like, no, <laughs> drive all the way in the city, turn around, come all the way back over the bridge and just like, oh, and that was at least every week. <laughs> it takes a lot to be planned <laughs> to stop doing that. Um, but it was great. It was such a great learning opportunity um, and being able to really get to know wine suppliers, winemakers that would come in. It was a very wine-focused um, company and very supportive. So I really got to start dipping my toe in a bit more and really seeing what that world of sommelier world does look like. Um, I completed my diploma while I was working with Firefly as well, so that was they were such a great support with that. Um, but yeah, it was it was very interesting. And it was interesting to go to you know managing you know a team upwards of sixty. Um, that was yeah, that was a, that was a good challenge. Well, you you moved up to a larger group in two thousand and thirteen and joined um, Frank Moreau, who was Australia's first master sommelier. What, what was it like being part of the Maryvale group with so many venues, so many staff trying to deliver a wine program? Uh, it was incredible. Um, it's it's an amazing company to work for. It is so big, and it and it it was big then when I was there, and that was we were twelve hundred staff at that time, um, and we know it's doubled down now. Uh, but it was incredible. We had a sommelier team of twenty two at the time, and just yeah, and but you know the Maryvales, you know Justin loves putting on the yearly party where he does the Maryvales and it's the awards and it's great. It's a great team building, but you know. The, the things that come up on the projector and, you know, how many thousands of tons of beef have we served in a year and all of that. And it, there was always the hero moment for the SOM team, you know, how many bottles of wine have we sold um, and, you know, what the big ticket items were that we were selling for a team of 22 across all those venues. It was really great. Um, we all worked together. We had head SOMs in venues and their teams. I flexed across with Franck. At the time, Franck worked on the new venues and I worked on existing venues and staff training. And then I would jump in and cover annual leave for the other head songs across their venues. So I had such a great time because I was able to be at Mr. Wong's or be over at Felix or be over in a cello and just really have a lot of fun with those teams and those customer base. What were some of the challenges that you had with such different venues and creating the right wine offering for that? Honestly, it was the VIPs because our VIPs drank differently in every venue. That was the one thing we didn't think about. So we, you know, we started this major database, which was great that we all shared. And, you know, when, you know, so-and-so comes in here, this is what he likes to drink and then see his reservation pop up over in another restaurant and go, oh, great, we'll prepare those wines. But they drink completely different in different venues. And you're just like, well, this is null and void. And because I would see it because I would be, I'd be jumping across so many venues all the time. I, I was seeing all this and I was like, this is insane. And I'd, I'd say it to them. I'd be like, but you drink this over at, the, at Felix. And they're like, nope, don't drink that here. And you're like, okay then. <laughs> um, but I would say a cello definitely was my favorite restaurant, um, it, especially Friday afternoon. I've never seen a venue like it. You would start a Friday lunch service, 12, 1 o'clock, the suits would come in. You'd see their budget for their lunch. You know, the bottles of wine would start at $100 or 150 or 200 It would stay like that for the next four hours. 
And then about four o'clock, um, the bartenders would come around with trays of espresso martinis and Negronis. And then the big wine list would come back out again and they would start ordering $600,000, $800,000 bottles. And we would make more money between four and seven o'clock than we would all week. Wow, that is extraordinary. It was, and, it was, and it was contagious. As soon as one table started, they all did. It was just so much fun. <laughs> Do you have any um, crazy stories from your time at Maryvale um, that you can share with us? Probably uh, the- not. <laughs> <laughs> Do I have crazy stories yet? Should I share them? Maybe not. Um, <laughs> no, it's all been great. And honestly, that, that time with Frank, um, what he did there, that and the way he trained and the way Maryvelle trains and focuses you on you know, your finances and that's really how you're driving your business as a sommelier, you are a salesperson, um, has really set me up for where I am today. And I don't think I could be doing the job I do today without that background. How much has, has wine in Australia changed over your career and the art of the sommelier? Oh, so much, so much, I think. Um, it's definitely that that is that eloquent elegance and eloquence to a sommelier and they are, they are the host, they are the restaurant manager, they are the section waiter, they are the bartender. They, they need to be able uh, to be comfortable across all of those roles and responsibilities because they're about creating – an approachable and comfortable environment for guests to enjoy and want to learn. I think we, we've talked about it for years, if not a decade, about you know wine, wine can be terrifying for your customer and how to be approachable. I think we've talked about it enough now that we've all learnt from that and it's just part of the repertoire now. A good sommelier just talks to a table and can read a table and can see what, what they want to be drinking and it's not necessarily the big bottles. Is it's And people want to hear about stories too. That's where we're finding a lot of our customers that want to learn more about wines when they hear the story of the winemaker, where the wine's from, what it means, what the history was. Um, and that's, that's the great part, which means, you know, all the traveling you need to do in this career is so vital because you need to see the sense of place of where it came from and meet the people who made these wines. Um, and the customers appreciate that. This episode of Deep in the Weeds is proudly supported by Olsen Salt, makers of Australian sea salt since 1948. The sea has given my family everything. My family harvests the pristine waters from the Great Australian Bight to make some of the best sea salt in the world. Hi, I'm Alex Olsen from Olsen Sea Salt. We are the oldest family-owned salt company in Australia. We took over the leases of Pacific Salt in Baruka on the York Peninsula in the early 1960s. And then when the BHP salt leases in Wyala became available, my father took those over as well. If anyone has visited Wyala, I know it's a very, very windy place. So the three things you need to make salt are seawater, wind and sun, and you get plenty of all three of those here. Wind is a really important factor in making good sea salt because it creates a greater surface area for the sun to evaporate the water, creating brine much faster. We take the seawater from Great Australian Bight and then we store it in something called a primary pond. Then it's fed through a succession of ponds from anywhere between eight months and two years until it gets so heavy in brine and the water is evaporated off, the salt starts to fall out of the water and it's as simple as that. That's all that we do and we wash it in seawater and package it. For more information, go to olsons.com.au.
David Walsh is credited as the spark that uh, reignited the food scene in in Tasmania because he created Mona and a lot of tourism. What, what drew you to to Hobart to take on the role at Mona? Um, funnily enough, it was a friend of mine and a close friend, and also I get to call her a mentor, which is great, uh, Samantha Conyu from Stargazer Wine. Um, I'd met her the year before I moved down and she'd mentioned she was living in the Hunter Valley and she mentioned she was thinking about moving to Tasmania and buy vintage and it was about August, October that time. And I was like, you better hurry up if you want to get there by vintage. Well, you're leaving us a bit late. And then she rang me in January and said, I've bought a vineyard in Tasmania. And I rang her back the next day and I said, I just resigned. I'll meet you down there. Um, Franck was on holidays with his family in Beaujolais, so I, I rang him. He was very upset. <laughs> He's like, you can't leave. I said, oh, I'm, I'm bye. <laughs> so I drove out of Sydney as he flew back in, which was quite a lot of fun. <laughs> but, you know, we have such a great relationship. But, yeah, I raced Sam down here and helped her out with her first vintage at Stargazer and then started teaching wine down here with Curly Hassam Coates, uh, so teaching WACT and helping her as a relief teacher because she does an incredible job down here, but she's championing it on her own. It's, it's a big job, so I help her out when she needs it. And then Mona started calling, um, and I popped in probably two months after moving down. My partner said to me, he said, what are you, you going to go for? And I said, I don't know. I've never had three jobs before. You know, work in the vineyard, teach wine, maybe a couple of Somme's shifts. This will be great. And I walk in and met the lovely Maria Larigi, uh, who is doing my, my role now. And she sat me down and she's like, well, this is the legacy and I need to hand this over and I want you to come on board so I can start handing this over to you. And I just looked at her and went, well, that, that's not two days a week. <laughs> that's um, okay. <laughs> and, of course, you say yes. How can you not say yes to that? Like, what an incredible opportunity. So she took me under her wing um, and we've, we had a great three years together and she's now moved on to something else. And, yeah, here I am. Well, Mona is a, a most incredible place to visit for the art, but when it comes to food and wine, we often don't think about that with, with galleries or museums. Um, tell us about the, the food and wine program there and how important, important it is. Uh, very important for us. I think it's very important for everyone. We know that you know guest visitors are coming to Mona because it's on the top ten list to travel around you know Tasmania, and that's great. And when they get here, they need to be fed and watered. But we know the draw card is to see the museum first. Um, food wise, our culture has it's always evolved, but now it's taken a very sharp right hand turn currently, which is great. Uh, we're quite involved with David and Kirsch, his wife, Kirsha, and Kirsha did a fantastic exhibition called Eat the Problem two years ago and this beautiful book that she developed. And we did exhibition parties. We did five dinners and then a series of micro dinners uh, where we had built a table, which was the uh, world's largest and in-tune glockenspiel. And it was like sitting on a rainbow staircase and every course, you had to move your seat to get to your next course because every course was color-coded to the, the panel of the table. And we had performers walking up and down the table while you ate. Um, we had our wait stuff. Every two guests, we had 35 wait staff, 16 chefs, 
eight bartenders, 10 musicians and performers that entertained the room, um, which is really David's brief to us with our food and beverage that he just wants to be entertained. So Kirsch's theme, so you're, it's not as easy as vegetarian. Uh, David is a vegetarian, um, but that's not – we're not easy in in how we deliver things like that. It's more of what are we doing with our food and where is it coming from? So when we reopened, we reopened a burger bar for David. We called it Dubsies because why not? It's Dubsies Burger Bar. And we got in the Beyond Beef uh, meat patties from or fake meat patties from America which was great and ended up being our most popular selling burger because we worked out customers didn't know it was fake meat uh, because like a menu board, it's all about where you place it. You call the burger Dubsy, so it's after the boss. It says Beyond Beef in capital letters, but people just read the word beef and it, it was on top of the menu. So we sold 70% of our burgers with Dubsies and something like 60% of customers had no idea, uh, which was and – that, and that's exactly what David and Kersha love. They think that is an amazing result. Um, but now, you know, it's now you look at the carbon footprint of getting those Beyond Beef burgers down here. It's too much. So now we're looking at V2. So there's layers of what do we want? It needs to be socially, like socially, economically good for us. It's got to be good for the environment. We want to support local producers, but we also want to support what's being challenged. Uh, David and Kershaw have a farm, but we're, they've got live venison, but we're not allowed to shoot them but we're allowed to get wild rabbit from South Australia. So all of these complexities is kind of where we're going. Um, so we're not meat free, um, but we're on a journey and we're on a journey to discuss it with our customers, which has just been incredible. So we really kicked off from Boxing Day and then from Easter, we've really started to amp up our food and what our food offering looks like. And we've just kicked off our winter feast at Dark Mofo last night. And for the first time ever, our head chef Vince has pulled out the heavy metal kitchen, all vegetarian. And he's just, you know, not years past of walls of meat and carcasses burning and chickens hanging from, you know, wires and spinning around. None of that. We've got cauliflowers hanging. We've got big zucchinis roasting and it still has the same impact. Everyone loved it. So it's, and the local community said the same thing. They said, if Chef Vinny can pull this off, well, there's no reason why we all can't. Um, so yeah, first night, pretty good success. We're pretty happy so far. Well, as wine director, that sharp right hand turn from a culinary perspective, what, what impact has that had on your role and the wine program? Um, what it's doing is education that David really believes in. David wants us all to be learned and well-researched. So he's been very supportive with all of our roles across the homeowner company and what kind of what developments we're all doing professionally. Uh, he's been very supportive of my wine education as well, and not only that, the, the whole hospitality team's wine education. We do have two wineries. Uh, we have Marilla Estate and Domain A, which we acquired Domain A three years ago. Um, so the focus at the moment is primarily those two. Um, it is local for us, obviously. It's, our, it's literally our front doorstep. Uh, people are coming to Mona to, and Tasmania to get the whole Tasmanian experience. So that is our focus right now and working closely with our winemaker, Connor, and the type of styles of wine that he's developing. Um, and then we just have this beautiful European um, worldwide cellar, I would call it, that's linked to our source restaurant 
which is just a lot of fun. Um, it's amazing. When I started, the worth of that cellar was the same worth of, I think we worked it out, it was the Ivy Building in Maryvale. And this was a cellar, this is a cellar that seats 60 people in a restaurant. <laughs> So it's um it's a great thing to play with. So, you know, that is the nice hobby and it is great to be able to offer those wines, whether they're for David's friends or for VIP guests or anyone that just wants to order off the wine list. But our focus really is what's home and what are our products at the moment and where that direction's going. Um, so with Marilla, Domaine and Moobrew, that's definitely our attention span right now. Um, yeah, which is very exciting. It's great to be able to work in a place where I've got two wineries and a brewery. The move from Sydney and Maryvale to to Tasmania is such a dramatic change in lifestyle. What what have you enjoyed most living in Tasmania? Uh, I think the day I drove into my street, uh, Peter Dredge, uh, the winemaker from Meadowbank and Dr. Edge, was standing in my street, as was Joe Holyman from Holyman Wines. And I looked at the two of them as I was driving by and I wound down the window and even looked at Joe Holliman, I went, I'm pretty sure you live in Launceston. And that's when Joe looked at me and goes, that's how small Tasmania is. I'm in your street. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, okay, I, I think I'm happy here. This is it. And it was, it was honestly from day one, just to see that. I'm like, these are my neighbours. This is great. <laughs> um, I did a trip for Young Guns of Wine, I think in the first month of moving down here. And went to Melbourne and was on the flight back. And as soon as it touched down, my actual insides just said to me, they're like, you're home. And I went, wow, that was quick. You know, it, it didn't take months to, you know, really get settled. It happened pretty, you know, pretty much straight away. And it's just such a great community down here. Everyone is so supportive. Everyone wants, everyone that's here is here for the same reasons. You're here for the food, here for the atmosphere, the hikes, the wilderness, the beach, all of that, and if you're not into it, you've already gone back to the mainland. So it's it's really easy to you know just jump straight into the community down here. The impact of the last eighteen months on the hospitality and the arts has been uh, quite monumental in Australia and globally. What sort of impact did it have on Mona, given the dependency on tourism for its uh, success? Uh, it was massive, uh, as it was for I mean everyone around the country. Uh, we cancelled our dark mofo in the beginning of March and then two weeks later, it was March 16th, we decided to shut Mona um, and we didn't know, as, it, as no one did, we didn't know what the future would be. So it was two weeks of chasing our tails, fine, you know, knowing that something was coming but we didn't know what JobKeeper and JobSeeker was and then when that started to be revealed, again, talking to all the staff, getting them through, then finding the visa holders, we're still getting nothing. I still remember back then thinking the government has to do something and they will, and it's still so baffling that they never did. Um, so David, being David, just made sure that we left no one behind and everyone was taken care of, which was very generous. But we did. We walked off site two weeks after we decided to close. Um, we didn't know when we were coming back. It was Chef Vince and I walking down the driveway in, in some tears, to be honest. Um <laughs> And we didn't know. So we locked up site. David and Kershaw got some friends to come live on site and they had a great time for a couple of months. Uh, that first week of sitting at home, they did give me a call at five o'clock on a Friday and asked me to come back to site and make them cocktails. And I jumped off my couch and I got my keys and my partner said to me, he goes, where are you going? And I'm like, 
Oh, they want me to go make cocktails. And he's like, we've been kicked off site because of COVID. You can't go. And I was like, oh, that's right. I can't go. <laughs> so then I rang them back and I said, you've got the keys to the kingdom. It's filled with booze. It's called YouTube. Have fun. <laughs> Teach yourselves. Um, but, yeah, I think for them, they got a bit of cabin fever. So it was about June. They started sneaking Chef Vinny and I back on site and we started doing family dinners for them each week. And we were doing that down in our Faro wing and they loved it. And so Kirsch, it was Kirsch's great idea. She was like, let's, let's do this. Let's just do this restaurant on weekends for people and see if they enjoy it. And, you know, it was going to be a high premium price tag and we just got everyone involved in it and sat in the round table and exactly our music cluster, Brian Ritchie from Violent Femmes is our head of our music cluster. And wow. we talk exactly amazing. Um, and talking with all the musicians and they're not getting any support and what this is. So David's brief to us is I just want to be entertained. So we came up with the Farrah Experiment Weekends. We did a new menu every weekend and nearly killed the chef team trying to pull out a new menu every week. Oh, that, that poor team. <laughs> they were like, you're killing us. And I was like, it's okay. Uh, so we did a, a Bogan pub theme where we got a, a local band that came and played all cover songs. We got, we did a vegetarian theme, we did a seafood theme, we did a Mexican theme, which was great. Um, and Kersha asked for a mariachi band, as which Brian Brian said, um, Kersha, there are no mariachi brands on Tasmania. <laughs> and she's like, well, I want it. So Brian and two other of the music cluster team went away for the week and taught themselves how to be a mariachi band. And they were amazing. <laughs> they looked like the three amigos and it was just awesome. Um, we had our performers, Kelly. Um, she was teaching all the customers how to dance in their chairs because you're not allowed to dance. So we had, we had artwork, we had music, we had performance, we had food, we had booze, and it sold out. In, as soon as we would release spots, it would sell out, and it was incredible 12 weeks. So then we just continued with it, and then we went, this is the new theme of what we do now. Um, we don't advertise it. We kind of like it's a surprise for people that they turn up and they go, what, what's going on? Why is there a band? What's, there's art? There's what? What am I doing here? Um, and they're all a bit discombobulated. Some of them write us complaints and say that the staff were drunk. It's like, no, those were the performers, but that's okay. <laughs> 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 and they were probably drunk, but that's fine. <laughs> that was part of the performance. Um, but, yeah, no, it was, it was great to get our feet back. Um, in that way and have the whole company pull together and deliver this and David and Kersha to be so happy with what we came up with. And it basically was a, a rebranding. Um, and then that led us up to our Boxing Day reopening where we, re we reopened site and 2,500 people on site. It was just chaos and it was awesome. And we were all so happy. We were all grinning ear to ear and just so happy to be back. Many people on the podcast have talked about the positive um, change that they've been able to bring into their lives because of the last year and a half. What sort of positive changes have you brought into your operations um, and your career uh, given the impact that it had? Uh, the positive change for me was I had an instant desire to reach out for not help but seeking mentors and reaching out to friends and making sure in the industry, especially, are you okay? Um, and reaching out 
to others around who I'd either been watching from afar or I'd started to build a relationship and basically did just put my hand up and went, I need help. I need help and I need direction. I was very fortunate enough to get one of the spots with the Wine Communicators of Australia mentorship program last year as a mentee. So my mentor was Gil Gordon-Smith and she was incredible. And exactly that, we just get sit on the phone and just talk for hours and, you know, whether what today was and what COVID was or what do we want to do in the future and what do I want to do in the future. And she just helped me. She was like, you've got so many passions, but your key is you've got to start funneling where your energy goes. And that was the biggest clarity I needed. Um, and then when I spoke about that with other people such as Sam Conyu or Front Moreau, when I, when I would reach out to them and talk to them about it, that's when I realized she was pretty spot on there. I've got a lot of things I'm passionate about, but you can't be juggling 10 things at once. You've got to start focusing and just where do I want to funnel my energy? So it's given me a lot of clarity over the year um, and it's given me definitely reinstilled the passion for hospitality. And I'm in it for the customers and that's it. What I learned, my skill set is wine or it's food, but my passion is people uh, and that's definitely what COVID brought, brought back to me, which I'm just so happy for and so thankful for. The hospitality sector has always been known for connections, whether that's with guests or with teams delivering experiences. Do you think the upheaval that's happened has reinforced the importance of connections within the hospitality sector and there'll be a benefit from that moving forward? Absolutely. I really do. Um, I feel the connections, everyone everyone was supportive of each other before, but we were all time poor and we just put it down to, to being time poor and you knew you wanted to, you know, reach out more and check in and see how you're going and do more things and be more involved. But then you just signed it off to, oh, but, you know, I'm busy, I'll do it another time. Whereas I think what COVID did was go, especially for me and the people I spoke with, it was it gave us an opportunity to go, it's not about being time poor, it's about what's important to you. And building those relationships and those support network um, just has been incredible. Uh, and the strength that comes with it as well, um, it's it's definitely a turning point for the industry. Um, and I did during you know the first two months of COVID, I had, a, had my own little meltdown. And I thought I, I genuinely believed it was the death of the industry. Uh, I was I was in the headspace that this is luxury. People don't need restaurants. People don't need bars. This is luxury. Why would we ever go back to this? This is a pandemic. People have lost jobs. They're not going to be able to afford to come out. Uh, you know, this is the whole. You know, what, you know, globally, there'll be no more restaurants. And some of my, and a lot of my industry friends I was talking with, and they were like, "Whoa, you need to take a step back here." Like, it's okay. And it was one of them, bless him, <laughs> he pointed out, not religious, but he was like, there were pubs when Jesus was born. He's like, we're fine, okay? <laughs> People need to be fed and watered. We're, we're going to be okay. <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah, good point. <laughs> With uh, the need from yourself for a mentor and given your teaching um, background um, to white uh, people in wine and sommeliers, what sort of advice can you give um, for those that uh, are looking for a career as a sommelier or in hospitality? Um, if you have the bug, 
then definitely come like come to the party and just turn up we can you can be taught anything it's but you've got to have that hospitality bug and we do know you know hospitality is a career for a few and really a a stepping stone for many who are transitioning through university or jobs or so on and so forth but for those few who are who do get that bug and they know it straight away it's that first shift and you do know it's just be approachable and put your hand up if you want to learn more people around you they're the ones that are going to teach you there's there's always so many courses you can do and that's great but it's the people around you and it's it's a chefing you know analogy that we talk about you can stay in a venue for 10 years and if the same chefs are on your left and right-hand side of you, there's only so much you're going to learn from a, a book and from them. It's an industry that you benefit from the staff turnover because the person that's to your left and to your right is someone new with new new information and new knowledge that you start learning from. Um, and that's something if you're passionate about it, it's it's all there. The staff around you, they, they're your books, they're your textbooks. Well, Pip, you're an inspiration. We're honoured to have you on Deep in the Weeds today to hear your story. Um, No doubt there's a lot more to it. Thank you, Huck. (laughs) Thank you for having me. It's been great. Well, please keep in touch because I reckon we might have to catch up again in the not-too-distant future too. Absolutely. And please come down and have have a beer with me down here at Mona or or we can raid David Seller. (laughs) (laughs) I might go for the latter. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds good. Thanks, Thanks, Pip, Huck. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we take a deep dive into the lives of the incredible people who ply their trade in the food and hospitality sector. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.